here's a proverb. Um, I chose verse 11. Oh, how apropos. A fool <laughs> vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. Okay, so there's your living demonstration of Scripture. Today we're starting um, a Christmas series, and I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, the title of the series is I Come to Worship. And um, the theme that we're going to follow through this time is I decided to take a real good look at Christmas through the eyes of the Magi. And if you don't know who the Magi are, um, we're, uh, then I'll, we'll explain that as we go. But I, I think that as we focus a little bit on who Jesus is and, and what he did for us and you know the power, the power of a virgin birth, I think God's going to do some things in our hearts over the next few weeks, and uh, we're going to see something of our own intimacy grow in him as we come to worship him. And um, I, I, I want to ask somebody, I asked somebody in advance to um, help me out with this, and I invited Jill Williams to come up. So Jill, do you have that sheet of paper? Um, I invited Jill to um, read part of the Christmas story, so um, we're going to put it up on the wall so you can follow along, but let me pray first, okay? Lord, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for the promise of this story. Thank you for coming and loving us the way you did. Help us, Lord, to hear from you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, Luke 2, 7 through 16 and 20. And Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now there were, now there were in the same country shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone all around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe laying in the manger. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, and it was told to them. Way to go. Thank you. Well done. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. <laughs> so um, as we start now in reading into studying the, the, the whole Christmas journey that we're going to go on, I want to kind of set a little bit of context for you about the time of Christ, in, in particular for the Holy Land. So um, I, I'm, this is a little bit that's going to be a geopolitical. I'm going to kind of get you up on, uh, on, on, in speed with what's going on here. Before Christ came, this part of the world had been um, it had gone back and forth in who ruled, and um, you've probably heard the name Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered a huge portion of the world, and when he died, there was a bit of a civil war, and over time, four of his primary lieutenants, we'll call them his generals, they split up the world into sections and ruled. And so a lot of the area that we call the Holy Land, and to the east of there, was, uh, was, was called the Parthian. Empire. Okay, so I'm way condensing this. For those of you who are history buffs, 
Um, give me some grace here because I'm not going to go into every detail. But, but that was the Parthian Empire. And, and um, um, there was, uh, uh, over time, and especially as it got closer to the time of the birth of Christ, um, as Rome began to become a world power, there were several times when there were skirmishes. In fact, several wars broke out between Rome and the Parthian Empire. And guess what was right in the middle of that? The Holy Land. And uh, in fact, um, Rome didn't prevail. There were many times uh, Pompey the Great or Pompey Magnus uh, went in there and attacked Parthia with, Roman, uh, with his Roman legions. And he was beaten so severely that historians say that he lost 30,000 men on the battlefield. So that was clearly a defeat. Um, and, and there are other people's Mar- Mark Antony. You've heard of Mark Antony if, you've, if you watched the Cleopatra movie. You know who Mark Antony. He went in there and attacked Parthia, which was to the east, a Persia area, Iran. And uh, he was defeated so badly that in the retreat, he had to retreat completely all the way out of Palestine, out of the Holy Land altogether. Rome moved back and forth. So you can tell that this area that where the Holy Land, which we know is the Holy Land, it, it was basically ground zero for the skirmishes between Rome and the Parthian Empire. And, and, and the borders moved back and forth, and governmental authority moved back and forth. So that's kind of the stage. And uh, so Judea becomes this, this buffer zone between... Parthia and Rome. Does that sound kind of familiar? You know, the Holy Land today, a little bit of a buffer zone between warring factions. There's always turmoil there. And uh, I look at that, and um, uh, here's how I personally feel about that. When I, when I think about what's going on today in that land, and, and uh, I look at the politics of the land, and I, and, I, and I can't help divorce my mind from this sense of history and what's going on today, and I go even further back in history, and uh, I see the words God spoke to Abram. And you can find this for yourself if you want to in Genesis 12, where basically, I'm going to paraphrase this, God says to, to, to Abram, speaking of his, his children, the nation of Israel, and I say this is the nation of Israel, you can find that in other places, Numbers and Zechariah, different places, but basically God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. For out of you will come a blessing to all mankind. And I look at that today. And although I'm on a bit of a rabbit trail and I'm not going to stay here long, I look at that today and I think, I want my nation to be blessed by God. And so therefore, I want my nation to bless that land and that group of people. And so I'm, I'm concerned about that. And I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I encourage you to do the same thing. So anyway, Roman rulers were in and out of this area um, the, the, as the Roman-Parthian border kind of moved back and forth. And um, at the time that Jesus was born, this was not a Hallmark card. <laughs> it wasn't. Um, I mean, I get those cards, and I appreciate them. You know, the nice, the, the palm tree and the, the camel and a guy off a silhouette, and here's a baby in a manger and a couple of stars. You get the, you get the picture. I mean, I suppose those nights could have happened, but, but the land was not this peace-filled place. Um, you know, um, it was, the land was occupied by a Roman-installed dictator. His name was Herod. Caesar uh, named him, named Herod, king of Judah. Even though Herod was not a Jew, he was an Edomite. He was an enemy. The Edomites were enemies of Jews. So Herod takes this enemy of them and says, you're the king over this area. His name was Herod. You and I have read about him. He was not a nice man. Okay? He was not a good, nice, nice man. He, um, he uh, had a habit of consolidating his power by killing his appoint- opponents. 
Uh, you don't agree with me? Fine, I'll just kill you. Fewer people to oppose. And uh, uh, taxes were terribly oppressive. There was a rampant bribery. And the way that rulers in these days got rich was this. If you had a lot of money and they wanted it, they would kill you and just take your money. So he got very, very rich just by killing people who had a lot of stuff that he wanted. He'd just kill them and take it. Okay, so this is not a good guy. He's a dictator installed by, by Rome. And uh, so he's ruler of this, this religious, this, 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 this buffer zone between two very powerful warring empires. <laughs> he's right in the middle of it. I don't know if he'd want that job. Okay, so I want to pick up the Christmas story again. That was from Luke. Here's a brief one, a brief uh, snapshot out of Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. This word that we see translated in our scripture, wise men, is magi. It's actually a plural form of, of magi. And who were the magi? The magi were a group of people um, from the Persian Empire, from the Parthian region. And typically, magi, um, had there was a hereditary component. You had to be born into it. And um, they had basically two roles. They had a governmental role, and they had a spiritual role. Now, their priestly role was mostly dream interpretation. I think we read the story and we think, oh, they followed a star, they were astrologers. That's not accurate. They were not into astrology. They were not follow, followers of Zoroaster. These guys were into dream interpretation. And that's evidenced by the fact that they were going not to worship the star they followed, but to worship the king. So they, were headed, they weren't there to worship the star. Um, and then they had a second role, and that was governmental. These guys would, would maybe be like what you and I would consider the cabinet. They were, had the top governmental positions of authority. But here's the deal with the Magi. Their duties included the absolute choice and election of who would be king. So when the, when, the, when, the, when the land needed a new king, the Magi picked them. There was no vote, no electoral college. This group of people um, would be the ones who made the choice. So there's the context. These are the guys that come in and they happen to encounter. Now, this is a little bit of a side note. Um, when you read in the book of, of, of Daniel, um, and you'll see there that at one point, um, Daniel is appointed the chief of the Magi um, by Darius, which is pretty amazing because he wasn't hereditary. He, didn't, he wasn't born into it like these other guys. And it's possible. This is just possible. I'm of the opinion of this, but can't, can't prove it. But Daniel chapter 6, the story about the, the lion, Daniel and the lion's den, I think that may have been brought around because the other hereditary um, you know, um, magi were ticked off. What do you mean? You bring this guy in, he's not even born of us, and he gets to be the chief? And I think they colluded and they, I mean, that's my opinion. So possibly, possibly that's what happened um, in, in Daniel chapter 6 of the lion's den. Anyway, so along come the magi in their dual priestly governmental office. And, you know, of course, we assume based on the Christmas cards, that there was only three of them because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and mercy. There must have been three of them. And there's a tradition for how we get to that number. It's more tradition than accuracy. In fact, this was not three guys on a camel. Okay, it wasn't. This was, an, excuse me, this was an entire military entourage, including cavalry, 
Okay, so these guys who were, remember where they are now, they're in the middle of this buffer state between two warring empires. These guys come into town, and it's not three guys on a camel. This is an entourage, and it included Persian cavalry. Now, if you know what Persian cavalry is, the cavalry is mounted. These are soldiers on horses. If you were a soldier on the ground, you did not want to see a cavalry if you had to oppose them because they had a huge advantage. And Persians were known for their particular form of cavalry. Um, they were mounted archers. Okay? These guys, had a, they, they were light and fast. They had a lot of arrows with them. They were accurate with them, and they were great from a distance. So before you ever got your sword or your lance and your shield out, you better be ready for raining arrows. They're coming. These guys were bad. So... The Magi show up. <laughs> and scripture basically says, if you read it in verse 3, it says, Herod was troubled. <laughs> and all Jerusalem with him. Does that sound like three guys would shake up the city? No, they're, they're seeing this, you know, imagine. Imagine, I don't know what to imagine. Imagine the Mexican army parking its tanks out in front of our church. We'd be all going, uh, you know, what's going on here? I mean, nothing, I mean, whatever. They don't belong here. Why are they here? Herod was troubled at all Jerusalem with him. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, if you're a little bit of a nerd, which I contend to be sometimes, um, and I read people who are bigger nerd than, nerds than me, somebody somewhere points this out. This is the very first question in the New Testament. Okay. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, okay, let's go on a little bit of a nerd rabbit trail for a minute. Could we, could we do that? Okay, so if the very first question is, is that in the New Testament, let's go to the very first question of the entire Bible. That'll be fun, okay. And you go back to Genesis 2 and 3, you get the first couple of questions. First, the context is God has told Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that one. But he does. He and Eve do. And, um, well, so here's what's coming up to before they, they do it. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 1, first question in the Bible. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent goes on to convince her, you know, that she shouldn't believe the words of God. First question in the whole Bible, did God really say? Okay, okay. Second question in the Bible, um, verse, verse 9, same one. Now, Adam knows he's done the wrong thing. He's hiding from God. God's walking in the garden, and God asks, this is God asking of, of Adam. He says, where are you? Now, I will point out to you the probably incredibly obvious, God doesn't need help finding out the facts here, okay? He doesn't, God isn't in, in the dark. Where, 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 where'd Adam go? God knows where he is. So why does he ask a question to which he already has the answer? It's worth us to think through. Where are you? And uh, so he has a purpose there since he already knows the answer. And the, then, of course, we come to the first question in the New, New Testament. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I love that, those three questions, because they kind of form a se sequence. Here's the sequence. First, 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 first sequence. The enemy of our soul, the enemy of our, you know, we have an enemy. The enemy of our soul wants to derail our relationship with God 
by injecting questions and doubt and fear. And you know when he does that, he goes after our most common weak spot that we have, and that's our tendency to put our feelings higher than truth. We have a tendency to do that. We'll tend to say, well, this is how I feel about this. And we'll wish, pretendish, pushish that feeling somehow to a higher place than truth. That's one of our... And, and, and hell knows that about us. So he, he wants to derail our relationship and he sticks some, some doubt right in there where it can get some leverage. That's the first, first question. Second part of the sequence. God knows that, sees that. And here's what he's doing when he says, where are you? He lovingly helps us see separation between us and him. You notice he didn't come charging in there making an issue. He basically helps Adam to see that distance all on his own. And then the third one, and this is just interesting nerd stuff here, right? I just see a pattern here, and I like patterns. But And then in the New Testament, the first question, when the, the Magi come and ask, whereas he has been born king of the Jews, is us. Now we get to close the distance between us and him by rightful worship on our hearts. I, I love to ask that question. I don't love to ask that question. It's healthy to ask that question, number two, by putting my name in it. Where are you, Terry? Where are you, Lisa? Where are you, Ben? Where are you, Dan? Where, where are you? God would ask. And I think both of these groups, the shepherds that we read about that Jill helped us with and the Magi that we read about together, they're all on a journey to Jesus. They're on this journey to Jesus. First, first observation I'd make on our little, um, little side trail here is that anyone, everyone, is welcome and able to find God. Everybody. Everybody. The Magi happened to be shown a supernatural star that said, come this way. It's like, I don't know, maybe the equivalent of GPS back then. But, I mean, they're showing the star. And here's my thoughts about that star. That star was right up there in the heavens for everybody to see, including Herod. And when they encounter Herod, and, and Herod says, hey, um, well, I don't know where he is, but if you find him, would you, would you tell me to? If you read the story on, you'll find out that he doesn't, he doesn't go, oh, where? Show me that star. I'm going to come with you. I want to find him. He doesn't do that. It's right there. The pathway is right there. It's available. The shepherds get a little bit of a different experience. They get, they get this angelic concert. It's a pretty cool thing. Pretty amazing things that are going on there. God promises that anybody who seeks him will be found. He, he makes this promise in Jeremiah 29, verse 13 and 14. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I love that promise but it adds such responsibility for the individual. The second thing, observation is number two, is that sadly, not everyone will find God because some people will close their hearts to him. Herod was this guy whose heart was evil and he just intended to stay king of his world. And he had access to that same supernatural sign, but he, he, he just rejected it. And I think there are people today who want to stay king of their world. And they reject the signs of God pointing to them. And here's Jesus. Here's what Jesus has to say about that in Matthew 7. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. 
And there are many that go by it, go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So these wise men ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. And I love the fact that these guys didn't come to get something from God. They came to offer worship to him. I mean, I, tragically, I think in our culture, Christianity many times has been reduced to a formula. It, it can be a formula. We talked about this last week. You know, people actually believe that God exists for us. You know, that, that if we just do the right thing, if we pray the right thing, if we act the right way, then God has to do what is in our mind and our heart that he should be doing. We reduce God to this kind of a cosmic Coke machine. We put the coin in and we push the button and God has to put out the bottom what it is that we think is the right thing. And that that's not who God is. That's not why he exists. He doesn't exist for us, but we exist for him. We're created to glorify him, to worship him, to, to, to make him known, to, to honor God. And I, I really believe, I really believe that God wants more of us, more of you and me, to the place where our hearts um, would just worship him, would worship him. So I really believe in this Christmas season that God's going to build in us an individual desire to know him more passionately than we do today and, and with a heart of worship. Now, um, so I'm going to talk about, uh, over the course of this series, we're going to look at um, how worship is described in different places in Scripture. And I will just say right now, relax, because I'm not going to give you the formula. Here's how you worship. If you're not worshiping like this, there's something wrong with you. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to take a look at some of the forms of worship that are described, and they're good, and they're right, and they're righteous. And I hope you will be open to what the Lord might call you personally to participate in in forms of worship. Now, I also want to say this. This church isn't going to be any different next week than we were this week. So I'm not here announcing that we're going to start going crazy in the room, okay? So relax, relax. Another thing I want to say to you about forms of worship is that Scripture says that we have terrible filters with this, when it comes to this because we look on the outside. We look at people around us and go, well, you know, that person worships different than me, and that person is either, depending on where you are on the scale of worship, you know, expression, that person is either going to be a kook if they're more demonstrative with their worship than you, <laughs> or they're going to be stodgy if they don't worship like you do, okay? That's what Scripture says. Our filter isn't good. It says man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Let's not go there. Let's just not do that. Let's not assess each other's hearts based on what we see on the outside. It's not our business. What our business is, including it's not my business how you worship. What is my business? To teach the word of God and to encourage you to grow in your faith and your understanding of the Lord's love for you and his word. So that's what I'm doing today. So I want to start with one of the forms of, of worship described in scripture, and, and that is the lifting of hands to the Lord, lifting our hands to God. And so I'm, maybe some of you, you know, you grew up in a more conservative, in terms of this expression, a church they, that, you, that you were taught the word of God, you loved Jesus, but just the style was different maybe than maybe you saw today here. Maybe you came in and there were times where you saw people doing this and, and it was different than what you've experienced and maybe not what you're comfortable with. And I can tell you that um, when I first encountered it, it f- seemed 
it seemed, it gave me mixed signals. I thought there was something authentic about it, but it made me uncomfortable at the same time. It was awkward. And I think I want to make fun of that. So um, I brought you a little brief video to help you see different forms of worshiping with your hands up. And I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. We've got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow, hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. We got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. <laughs> Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. <laughs> and when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go, there's your big three. So... Now, nobody's going to be able to lift their hands here anymore because... <laughs> I, don't, I like to wash the window and don't make fun of me when I do. Okay. So I want to, you know, it's, it, I think it's okay to poke fun at ourselves um, because it's not what it looks like. It's going to be whether it's what's going on in the heart. And so we're going to come to that. But I want to I take a more serious look at this. Why does Scripture teach us to lift our hands and what exactly does it accomplish? And I think that we're going to find that when we do something in worship, when we do something in worship with our hands, there's a reflection there to some degree about what's going on in our hearts. I want to start with this um, in Psalm 63. And here's the story. David wrote Psalm 63. And um, when he wrote this, he was in the wilderness and he was dealing with some family issues. Now, I promise you, David's family issues were worse than yours. <laughs> Whatever you got going on in your family, I don't care what they are. This is worse. Here's, here's some quick background. Um, David has a, um, a son who, and a daughter and, a, and another son. He's got multiple wives, and um, one of the sons rapes his sister. And another son isn't happy about that, ought not to be. Dad doesn't do the right thing. Other son takes things into his own hands, kills the brother... So we have a rape. Now we have a brother killing a brother. Now the son that kills the brother 
that was the rapist is mad that dad didn't do something about it. And I'm way compressing the scriptures here. But um, now the son who did that is mad, still mad at dad. And now he's chasing dad and he wants to kill David, his father. Is this a dysfunctional family? Okay. We can all agree there's some pretty serious problems. David is now in the wilderness on the run. His son is trying to kill him. He's got this background of all these failures. Now, this is the same David that God says is a man after his own heart, which uh, frees uh, us up, should free us up in a lot of areas in our life to feel like, man, I can mess up, but God still knows my heart to love him even though I make mistakes, big ones. So he's at this terribly, terribly low point in his life, and he's crying out to God. And maybe you feel kind of like this. Maybe some of us in this room kind of feel some of these things. And he says in verse 1, he says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. And I wonder, you know, sometimes we can get there. It feels dry. It feels desolate. We can feel alone. We can feel rejected. We can feel afraid. And we say things, you know, I I didn't think my life was going to turn out like this. I, I did not expect to be at this place in my life by now. And I know it's the holidays. I'm supposed to be enjoying Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I'm supposed to be happy about something. Things are just not all that happy for me. And, you know, holidays can kind of magnify our feelings one way or good or bad. They just kind of do that. And David's crying out. He says, God, I need you. I long for you. I crave for you. There's nothing on this earth that satisfies me right now. I need you, God. I desperately need you. Then in verse 2, he says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. I I stop right there and I think, wow, okay. The love of God is better than life. That's hard to intellectually understand, let alone emotionally understand. He's saying your love is better. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It, it, it never fails. You know, this life's going to fade away, but the love of God will go right on past. Okay. So therefore, David says, he says, therefore, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In other words, I can't stop it. He says, I can't stop it. I can't stop praising you, God. And it, it's because you're that good. You're that powerful. And it's not because I deserve it. There's nothing I can do to deserve your love, God. Now, remember, David's in this terrible place. He's not thanking God because things are good, right? He's not thanking him because he's good. He's, he's thanking him because even though my life is messed up, you're still good, God. He's saying that. And then watch this, and he says this. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. In your name, because of who you are, I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to praise and glorify you. I'm going to lift up. This is an act of worship. I'm going to lift up my hands, God. Now, I told you a little bit before about um, lifting hands in worship. For me, the very first time I was in a church, and, you know, I, I come out of obedience. My parents said, come with us to church, and I go, and people are doing stuff I've never seen before except at a football game or a basketball game. They're kind of carrying on, and it's loud, and it's going on. And I felt these mixed feelings. It's genuine. It's not comfortable to me. I don't feel like doing this. I also felt like I was being left behind. 
I felt like there was a whole crowd of people that were going somewhere. It was authentic and real and powerful, and it was affecting them, and it was positive, it was good, and I was kind of getting left out. But my, I don't know what to describe my, my emotions, my pride, my fear, maybe, my sense that, well, I would have to leave my man card in the car if I was going to do this in church. You know, I faced all those things, and... And I just know at one point, and I did not hear an audible voice, but I know I, our Father knows us. He knows the right words to use for us. And he took this hard heart, I'll describe myself that way, and he said, you know, hey, Terry, are you going to be courageous? That was the word. Courageous enough to not care what people around you think. Are you going to be courageous enough to trust me and know this isn't about me and my ego. It's more about than you than you realize, Terry. Are you going to trust me enough? And I remember the first time I thought, okay, I'm going to have to choose to not give a rip about what people think. There's worship here, and I'm not worshiping completely for Terry. I'm holding back. So close my eyes. Up go the hands. Now, I wish I could tell you that was the first time. I think the first time I did this or whatever. I mean, it took me a while to get my hands up there. Of course, and here's the scary thing. I looked next to me, and my wife was uninhibited. Talk about making me feel more left behind. I mean, and, and when the moment came for me, and I felt like, I could lift my hands, something transpired in my soul and something came out of my soul. It just came out of my soul. This freedom, this sense. And I'm just telling you, this is my personal experience. I'm not projecting this on you. I'm not expecting it of you. I'm just telling you how it worked for Terry. And I, I, I just really believe, I, I mean, I question whether you can really experience the grace of God without showing some sort of gratitude in some form. I mean, when you really understand who he is and what he's done and, um, for me and for you, and, 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 and you're going to want to express your heart in worship to God when you really get your own. In fact, um, in the New Testament, you know, Paul's teaching Timothy, who was this young and upcoming preacher. He says, he's, he's teaching Timothy how to teach people how to worship in 1 Timothy 2.8. And he says, he says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Interesting scripture. I, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, an awful lot of times when you get into the Bible and you see the word men, the translation actually is mankind or everybody, men and women, okay? That's not what it's saying in this instance. In this particular instance, Paul talking to Timothy about men everywhere, it actually means men individual men. I wish men would do this. That's what that scripture is saying. Wow. I, I really think the Holy Spirit is through the Apostle Paul here. He's addressing something characteristic of us guys. And that's this. I think men are often the last to do this. We are. There's just something that threatens our manhood. I mean, maybe, maybe, it, maybe, maybe it's our pride or it feels awkward, or we look at it and go, well, that's a softer chick thing to do, and we just feel, you know, it's not a man thing. But I, I, think, I think Paul here, I think the Holy Spirit here through Paul is, is putting out this challenge to us guys, in part because that's how he speaks to us men. We need to be challenged. He just said, come on, guys. You set the standard for worship. 
Men, set the standard. I want the men to be the leaders in the family. I I want the the children to see their fathers seeking after God. If, If you want, by the way, if you want your children to seek after God, let them see you seek after God. Just a generic freebie. And I, I would just say to the men of this church, I mean, guys, don't you dare let your wife out-worship you. <laughs> don't you dare let your children out-worship you, whether your hands are up or not. I, don't, I mean, don't you dare let the others around you. You be the one to set the tone. You seek God. You, you be a man after God's own heart. And Paul says to these men, you know, you lift up holy hands, you set the standard before anybody else. You should be worshipers. So, ask the question, why do we lift our hands in praise? Why do we do that? Why is it that God wants us to lift our hands? These are not my words. We've, we've seen scriptures where God is saying to us, come on, lift your hands. And I, you know, I, I, I think there's some earthly understandings of this. Um, I have a granddaughter now who has, you think you see me here, but actually I'm wrapped around a little finger this is a hologram, okay? But, I, you know, but when that little one, she can do what she does, and she's, she's sweet, 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 sweet. But when her little hands come up to me, yeah, I turn into this puddle. <laughs> Whatever she wants, up to all of my kingdom, not just half of my kingdom. <laughs> and I think our Heavenly Father loves it when we lift our hands. He loves it when we are reaching out towards God. He just loves it. And um, I think God will respond when we do that. He says so in James 4, verse 8. James says, draw near, to me, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, God, I can't reach you, but this is the best I can do. Um, I'm lifting up my hands, and it's an act of worship. We do that, and God promises to draw near to us. He draws near us. So why do we lift our hands and praise when I think God loves it? The second one is this. It's an offering to God. It's an offering Raising hands can actually be a form of an offering. In the same way that you might give money to the Lord, you can give an offering of praise. And we see this in Psalm 141. Here's another one that David wrote. And, you know, he's, he, he took his lumps because he's not in a good place in this one either. Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. He says, Oh, Lord, I'm calling to you. Please hurry. Listen when I cry for your help. I cry to you for help. Accept my prayers my prayer as incense offering, offered to you and my upraised hands as an evening offering. He's saying, I love you. Accept my upraised hands as an evening offering. Make this be acceptable to you, Lord. God wouldn't have put it in his scriptures if it wasn't acceptable and desired. It wouldn't even be there. If this had just been some off-the-cuff emotional comment that David made in the wilderness, it would have not made it into scripture. God loves it. And when... The moment strikes you, for some of you, if you ever do this, it may, you know, the very first time you give your, lift your hands as an offering to God, it, it might feel really awkward. It just it might kind of feel like you're pushing yourself, you're doing something out of obedience rather than it's in your heart. Or maybe it's just going to be way outside of your spiritual comfort zone, and I acknowledge that. I mean, but I, I encourage you, if you're going to decide to do this at some point, do it as an offering to God. It's not for anybody around you. It's an offering of praise. And you may not even feel like it, but you still say, God, I'm offering this praise to you because, not because of what you can give me, but because of who you are. 
that God, I'm telling you, God will be pleased. So we lift um, our hands because God loves it. It's an offering of praise. And then a third reason is because we're declaring battle. Did you know that? And, and we can declare battle and we need God's help. Now, some of you, right now, you're in a battle. You're, and I'm not talking about raising hands. I'm talking about something going on in your life. You are in a battle. And if things don't change, you don't really know what you're going to do. And, and um, so the moment will come for you where you say, okay, I'm going to lift these hands and I'm declaring battle in the name of the Lord. And, and I, I'm doing this because I want an all-powerful God to do battle for me, with me. I'm declaring battle with uplifted hands. The example of that we find is uh, Exodus 17. Um, the Amalekites were attacking the Israelis and, and Moses basically comes up with his plan and he says to his generals, he says, I'm going to stand up on the top of the mountaintop and um, I'll praise God and I'll lift him. You guys go do the battle out there, but I'm going to start the spiritual battle. And we pick this up in Exodus 17, verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So when he raised his hands, when he lifted his hands, when he acknowledged the power of God, the Israelites were winning. But when the hands came down, when he stopped acknowledging the power of God, the Amalekites started winning. And some of you today, you could be in some sort of a battle and it feels like you're losing. It could be now is the time for you to do battle by raising your hands to the Lord and saying, God, I need you to get this. I'm taking my hands off of it and putting my hands on you. You know, no matter what, God, no matter, you know, I just don't have the ability to get this done. So I lift my hands up to you. In spite of what I see and what I feel and what I think, I'm going to continue to praise you. And I'm going to declare, Lord, by doing this, that the battle is yours. And then scriptures come flowing in. You know, greater is he that is in us than the one that is in the world. No weapon formed against me will prosper. And the battle is lit. The thing is, you know, none of us can do this forever. We can't keep our hands up. It's not, it's not how long we can keep our hands up, how strong you can be, and how much you've worked out your your arms, your shoulders. Um, this continues in verse 12. It says, When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Is there something magic about his hands being up? No. No. But there is definitely a lesson here that scripture wants us to learn and that is that when we depend on the Lord we're going to find victory and that's what friends are for and there are people in this room who have stood with Terry while Terry was in a life and death battle so to speak in, in my circumstances who they weren't literally raising my hands although I've had people do that before I've had people literally say, come on, let's, let's hold your hands up and praise you. And I'll hold your hands up. And, and I've had literally had people do that. And I believe in those kinds of things. But it's not magic. But something translates in my heart of dependence and trust in God when I can freely give it up to God. And the hands follow. The hands follow what's going on in the heart. And 
I probably should say this, you know, I won't identify anybody, but there are people in this room that I want to thank right this moment for having been my Aaron and my her who have held me up. Several people in this room who have done that at times, and I've done it for others. In fact, that's, you know, that's why we worship together in part. This is one of the reasons, there's many, but this is one of the reasons we come to church together, and that's to worship together because of what happens when we press together and we seek God together. When you hold up your hands and when you say, you know, I want to be there with each other to hold them up, and there will be times that I need you to hold my hands up and I need to be there for you to hold your hands up and the people next to you. Some of you are in a battle right now and and it's time to declare, God, I need you. And I thought about this and throughout history, raised hands have meant two things. Two things, right? First one is you win, you know, touchdown, you know. Ray, we won, way to go. Hands are up, means victory, right? You'd agree? Okay, here's the other thing. Darth Vader comes up, out comes a lightsaber, sticks it right there, doesn't go in. What do you do? Surrender. The same motion means victory and surrender. Do you catch that? When we're in the presence of God, it means both simultaneously. At the moment that you surrender to him, that's when you're going to find victory through him. You have to catch that. It means both simultaneously, victory and surrender. Now, I'm wrapping this up. I just want to review because when I was um, planning this, I had most of my notes done and I started contacting Eric and other people saying, hey, let's uh, rearrange the church service on Sunday. And what I wanted to do was a couple, maybe one song of worship, dismiss the kids, preach the sermon, and have worship afterwards. To give you the opportunity to just right now, right here, raise your hands and worship if you wanted to. But I chose not to do that. I, I still have mixed feelings about that. Um, and here's the reason. I, don't, I really, really highly value your freedom to pursue this because it's in your soul and in your heart. I don't want a single person here to feel manipulated and maneuvered into raising your hands in worship as if somehow because Terry has declared that it's better, that you now need to do that. I would never be that. That's terrible. It's not my heart. And, I mean, we seriously considered doing it because sometimes it's good for your leadership to, to nudge you, Right? <laughs> it's just it's a fact. Sometimes I need to be nudged too, right? But we ended up with, we didn't want a single person, not a single person here, to feel manipulated into a style. And so um, we're going to end up end the service now. And here's the deal. There will be a song or two. I don't know really what's going to happen. But you're going to be invited. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you don't want to, then don't. And that's the right thing for you to do, okay? Um, and so I believe that if this, if this is something that the Holy Spirit wants to build in you, is in your future, the ability to raise your hands in worship, then so be it. But if this is something that makes you cringe, I just don't feel right about it, here's what Jesus says about that. And this should free you up, every one of you. John 4. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you see here Jesus does not say, raise your hands? He doesn't. He doesn't say dancing. He doesn't say tambourines. He doesn't say any of that stuff. There's no scriptural direction from Jesus that tells you how you have to physically show your worship. It needs to be in spirit and in truth. Can we as a church be freed up to not have an expectation for anybody, but to also have the freedom for everybody to express in a way? Now, I want to say one more thing about this. I think you're a sensitive crowd. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you feel free to worship without causing attention to be drawn to yourself because worship is never about us drawing attention to ourselves. It's always about us somehow drawing attention to the king. All right? So now I want to say this and hear these personally words. I don't want a single person here to feel marginalized about the issue of raising hands because it is not a measure of your heart and it is not a standard of this church for the correct way to worship. Everybody raise your hand and say, I heard that, Terry. I heard that, Terry. Okay. All right. So I encourage you, if you're so led, to feel free to lift your hands, not as a display of your righteousness, but because God loves it. It's an offering to him, and it's a battle cry. From the moment you surrender to him, you're going to find victory in him. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I need you. We love you, God. We trust you. We depend on you to do battle for us, Lord. So we surrender to you and we find victory in you. Lord, now, just because we've read this, I know that for some this will be just really uncomfortable and that's not your heart or mine. So I pray, Lord, that you would bring this to a place, Lord, now of peace and hope and freedom and love. Because when it comes down to it, Lord, I would like this church, we want this church to be a place that worships in spirit and in truth. That when we worship you, it'll be because that's in our soul. And we want to honor you with our hearts. In the name of Jesus.